Welcome to Point Two Law Review. I'm John Brandt. And I am Carson Messersmith. And we are here. It's the week of Valentine's Day, February 14th to February 2023, February 17th, 2023. And uh, yeah, I don't think I messed that up too bad. No, that was good. <laughs> Valentine's Day to three days after Valentine's Day. Oh, what else Day? happened this weekend? Uh, it snowed a lot. That was this week. What else? We got snow and we are... Uh, Post-Super Bowl weekend. Oh, Super Bowl. Yes, nachos. Nachos. Uh, Smokies. Little Smokies, yes. Cheeseburger dip or whatever that stuff is. Bevies. Bevies. Yeah, a few too many bevies on on Sundays. Yeah. So uh, everything go okay with your Super Bowl? Yes. uh, I I was happy to see the, the Chiefs win another Super Bowl. I think there's a lot of people in Nebraska who joined me in that sentiment other than our Broncos uh, fans in the area, and then sorry for Eagles fans. It was a heck of a run. Great game, though. It was a wonderful good game. game. I mean, you look at the end and you're like, eh. But I, you got to call it, right? Yeah. I mean, if it's a if it's a foul in the first quarter, it's a foul in the fourth quarter. You know, it's kind of one of those things. It's ticky tack, but I don't know. I can't beat up the refs too bad. I don't know enough about it to complain at all, but it just you know it seemed good. It was a good game. Well, it was a great game. It. Lots of points. Yeah. I, I think objective viewers, f- a fine halftime show. Anytime you have people floating on platforms, that's always, yeah. you know, riveting. You're listening to Two Dudes Talk Sports. Look at, <laughs> look at us. <laughs> Actually, we're going to talk about uh, Nebraska Supreme Court and Nebraska Court of Appeals decisions for this week. Um, let's start it off with the Nebraska Supreme Court uh, decisions for this week. Oh, and you may have noticed on the description, we're going to add hashtags uh, to things so you can say, hey, that looks something like interesting. And you can even further uh, summarize what's going on this week with some hashtags. And you can focus your attention on certain uh, cases that we might discuss. We'll have that in the description. And uh, I think we can get started with Nebraska Supreme Court. Carson. Let's fire it off. Uh, we start with the state of Nebraska uh, versus Gonzalez. This is an appeal from a conviction of intentional child abuse resulting in death uh, and terroristic threats. Here, the basis of appeal are essentially twofold. Uh, one, that the jury was not instructed on the lesser included offense of negligent uh, of negligent child abuse, um, or that they were, I should say, were instructed on the lesser offense of neg- negligent child abuse, but not involuntary manslaughter. And uh, that there uh, were prospective jurors who had admitted to uh, bias, but there was a change of venue that was not granted. So uh, no change of venue. Uh, The first thing that gets addressed essentially here is the uh, change of venue issue. Uh, There's a number of factors here for when a venue should be changed. Uh, Long, lengthy discussion of that. I think there's eight factors here. I won't read them all out, but if you have something where a change of venue you believe is an issue... You can look absolutely look at that factor test. The interesting piece here was that the jurors that the, the that the defendant used to demonstrate that there was bias in the area were all struck. So there was 25 jurors, I believe, uh, that admitted to the bias, and essentially all, none of those actually ended up uh, being jurors. And so you know there you could at least well, show that prejudice, yeah prejudice, actual yeah. prejudice is difficult to show even if it shows that oh this population base had some issues here uh, then uh, we we came to the uh, jury instruction issue 
this uh, is a, a three-factor uh, test that uh, the defendant must show, and it is uh, that the instruction is correct, that they wanted, that the instruction is warranted by the evidence, and three, that the appellant was prejudiced by the court's refusal to give the instruction. Uh, here, the court kind of goes through whether or not the instruction should have been given uh, for the involuntary manslaughter, but then uh, you know, it becomes a situation where it was essentially a non-issue because of the fact that the jury had already found intent uh, when they showed that there was intentional child abuse resulting in death. And so any uh, refusal to admit uh, the jury instruction proposed by the defendant, even if it was error, it was uh, at the most harmless error. And so the Supreme Court affirmed and um, kept the sentence that was put upon Gonzalez, and that is it on that opinion. All right, I got uh, Troush v. Hagmeyer, and uh, there was also an RLI insurance company that's part of the thing, but stay tuned, that doesn't really matter. Uh, it's a motion to dismiss a uh, civil claim from the Troushes against uh, Linda Hagemeyer, which uh, Hagemeyer was a notary public, and they sued um, the notary for uh, under the statute that says the notary has to be in the room and or in front of the person notarizing the signature and actually acknowledge that they said that these deeds of trust that were filed against them uh, by the bank were not properly notarized and but for the notary's negligence uh, they wouldn't have been foreclosed upon and had to go through bankruptcies and they were seeking um, civil relief for that based on her negligence uh, the court this, this was done in 2017. They filed it in November 2021. Uh, the court found that that was outside of the four-year statute of limitations for negligence, even though the Troushes argued that there was a 10-year statute of limitations for an action on an official bond. Now, if they were actually going to do it on the action for official bond, they needed to include the bonding company, which would be RLI Insurance. They did not do that, and they didn't properly serve RLI Insurance, so RLI Insurance is not properly uh, part of the case, they didn't have the court didn't have jurisdiction R over RLI insurance, so the ten-year statute of limitations argument failed. They went under the four-year statute of limitations argument, which also failed and could not be remedied, so it was dismissed with prejudice. And uh, the court here affirmed it as modified because the district court did mention RLI in its order, uh, and the court, the Nebraska Supreme Court here is like, well, we're going to modify any reference to RLIs gone. Um, there were sanctions imposed um, against the plaintiff here on behalf of the notary and the notary's attorney for $10,000 for attorney's fees and bringing it in bad faith. And there's actually a very good and detailed discussion about what the bad faith factors are. Um, if you're going to allege bad faith, here's a whole, I think it was a whole page of the opinion that was, these are the bad faith factors. Uh, and you can go through them to decide whether something is frivolous and in bad faith in order to justify uh, sanctions under that frivolous and bad faith statute. So there's also a good discussion here about judicial notice and how to do that um, to make sure that, you know, your motion for motion to dismiss isn't converted into a motion for summary judgment because there was some trepidation here on behalf of the uh, litigants to have the motion to dismiss be a motion to dismiss, but they still needed information from prior court proceedings that had happened um, because there was some claim preclusion alleged. So they needed to go through that and they had them marked and the court took judicial notice of them, but they weren't admitted as evidence until they had the sanctions hearing later on. So that 
I, I, I think there's some good discussion there because it's always procedurally important to make sure that if you're asking the court to take judicial notice of something at a motion to dismiss, you don't want to convert that into a motion for summary judgment. So you got to be careful. And uh, this procedurally gives a good procedural outline of how to properly do that in front of a court. And uh, otherwise, it was affirmed and the sanctions were affirmed. And there was some discussion, <clears throat> excuse me, there was some discussion about, well, these sanctions that you ordered, the lower court ordered them against the uh, plaintiffs, but not their attorneys. Come on, can we get get it from their attorneys too? Can we tag them? And the Nebraska Supreme Court said, no, the order says what it says. We're not going to uh, find abuse of discretion and tag the attorneys here. So it's just going to be the plaintiffs. So that's pretty much uh, Trash v. Hegmeyer. Uh, interesting things about statute of limitations, judicial notice, and uh, sanctions. So you can get judicial notice done without it being evidence or extraneous evidence, therefore converting a motion to dismiss into summary judgment. Is that what I'm understanding yeah, from it, this opinion? Yeah, as long as, because like here they're claiming claim preclusion, right? So you got to say that there's a previous claim and there's previously facts that were yeah, decided. Yeah, so if you don't demonstrate that there's a claim, you can't have claim preclusion. Okay. And the court sense. can take yeah. judicial notice of other, you know, uh, things that are inherently reliable, like court proceedings and findings of facts of court orders. So you get a certified copy of that and you put that in front of the judge and it makes it in the judicial, or excuse me, it makes it in the bill of exceptions without converting to a summary judgment because it's not technically received as evidence. It's one of those fun technical things that we can say and sound smarter than other people. Yeah. I, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> there we go. Into the minutia. Into the minutia. Troush v. Hagmeyer. What else we got? Uh, we come to Espinoza versus Job Source. Uh, the first thing I will note with this case, hashtag uh, workers' compensation, uh, is that, uh, one, I, I do not practice workers' compensation, so if I mess anything up on this, uh, you know, please don't beat me up too bad. No, we're going to beat you up. <laughs> well, uh, it's probably deserved. <laughs> anyway, and the second piece that I will say is I think this must be a pretty important opinion. Uh, in this world because there are not one but two uh, amicus briefs and so anytime you start getting amicus briefs uh, there's probably some good things to look at so if you practice workers compensation law despite how uh, bad i may end up butchering what this opinion found this seems like uh, espinoza versus job source might be something you want to look at but uh, the basis for this case is that an individual who was employed with uh, job source, which it appears is, uh, you know, some sort of uh, job finding firm, uh, was working at a bakery and uh, Espinosa injures uh, her wrist and elbow on the same arm, I believe, right wrist, right elbow. And uh, Espinoza argues that this was loss or loss of use of more than one member or parts of more than one member, um, which under the workers' compensation statutes would entitle her uh, essentially to a greater um, award. And so here the workers' compensation court, the, the lower court, concluded that a claimant who sustains injuries along the same extremity sustains, sustains an injury to a single member. And uh, therefore, the workers' compensation court said that it lacked authority to consider uh, an award of um, and I again, I'm butchering the uh, language here, but it's essentially the award of uh, permanent loss of use, I believe, which you can only get if it was more than one member. Uh, again, I'm going to butcher all these things. But uh, Espinoza appealed, and the Nebraska Supreme Court looks at this and reverses. 
And so here, Espinosa took the position that she was entitled to an award of permanent disability benefits based on her loss of earning capacity because she had suffered uh, loss to more than one member. Uh, she stated that she had sustained injuries to both her hand and arm, and that because of that, the court, the workers' compensation court, should have been able to consider a award that was based on that was based on loss of earning capacity. Uh, job source here argues that because Espinosa's injuries occurred along the same extremity, so it was an elbow and a wrist on the same side, that that was all one member, and therefore, you know, the workers' compensation court shouldn't be able to do that. Um, here, there's a lot of argument over what the definition of a member is. And so we get into, you know, a ton of, um, you know, dictionary definitions, the statutory history and, and floor debates that went on when this actual legislation, which was passed in 2007, this updated amendment when it was passed in 2007, when all those things came in, uh, public policy arguments are made, especially from uh, Job Corps and the, the amicus briefs. And here, uh, the interesting point that I will, I will note when uh, looking at the dictionary definitions is that even Webster's dictionary is used. So hmm. uh, plain terms and, and plain dictionary definitions are used. So if you have something where you want to cite uh, Webster's dictionary, again, the every dictionary pretty much in, uh, available was used in this opinion and in arguments apparently from both parties. Uh, here, though, the Supreme Court found that um, while the Workers' Compensation Act uh, exists, it is uh, said to be construed uh, liberally to carry out the spirit and benefit uh, or uh, beneficent purpose of providing compensation to employees injured on the job. And so that they find that the uh, broader definition or, or most broadly uh, defined definition of member is what should be used. And so they agree with Espinoza that those the wrist and the elbow are two separate members, and therefore the workers' compensation court should have been able to look at those as uh, separate members and then be able to consider uh, the loss of earning capacity based on a uh, permanent disability. And so therefore the Nebraska Supreme Court reversed and remanded that case uh, to the workers' compensation court. So again, I'm sure I butchered that, but it, it does seem like a very no. uh, valuable opinion yeah. for those who practice in that area. What is the definition of a member? And so now if you have some Somebody who's got a, a shoulder that's hurt and a wrist that's hurt, you know, some of those uh, injuries that are closely related but are on one side. You know, here you deal with something as to whether or not that's a permanent disability and, uh, you know, whether the workers' compensation court should be able to return on that. Yeah, that sounds like a big one. Uh, work comp people probably need to check that out. I would think so. Yeah. Um, I have Amanda F. v. Daniel K. It is a civil sexual assault protection order appeal. Uh, the respondent here, uh, Daniel, was acquitted after a criminal trial, um, and he was on the same day he was acquitted. The uh, individual here, Amanda F., went and sought a sexual abuse protection order based on the same facts. Uh, the facts uh, that are alleged occurred a number of years prior to the sexual assault protection order being sought, and then they had a hearing, and the uh, district court concluded that they had to find that a sexual assault occurred by a preponderance of the evidence, but they didn't have to see that whether future harm was going to 
you know, be, be found uh, in order to enjoin the respondent from having any contact with the petitioner. So here, the Nebraska Supreme Court clarifies that it actually is relevant to look at future harm. Um, and you, because of the word enjoin is similar in both the sexual assault protection order statute and the harassment protection order statute and the domestic abuse protection order statute, because the f- uh, word enjoin is used, it's a forward looking word. And because we're looking forward, evidence of potential future harm is relevant and it should be uh, considered by the district court or or I guess there's maybe, I'm not sure under sexual assault protection order whether you can go to county court on those or not, but whichever, uh, you know, trial court you're under, uh, they can look at evidence of potential future harm and that is a relevant factor, but it's not the only factor. Um, just like the remoteness of past instances of abuse are consideration for protection order cases, but not necessarily determinative factors. So the court looked at all these things and they found that there, there was a sexual assault that did occur. And based on the specific facts that were alleged that there was a potential look, uh, or a potential future harm for the petitioner from the respondent, uh, based on some, uh, post, uh, communication that he had with her. So some of those uh, factors were weighed in in favor of not only uh, granting the um, protection order, the sexual assault protection order, but affirming it on appeal. And so it discussed the burden shifts in protection orders, which I think is always a little, well, who goes first uh, and whose burden is it to to prove that and what evidence is necessary to prove that. Um, It does do a good discussion of when those burdens shift. So if you have a sexual assault protection order or, frankly, any protection order, um, this might be worth your time. Okay. So I think that's it for the Nebraska Supreme Court. It is. Correct. All right. So we shift our focus to the Nebraska Court of Appeals. We have multiple published opinions here, so that's uh, kind of unique. The first case that we come to is Johnson versus Woodhouse. This is kind of a unique, interesting case here. Johnson is a pro se litigant who is civilly suing uh, Woodhouse Ford based on uh, the fact that he was criminally charged with a... um, essentially grand theft auto a taking of a vehicle uh, that he was supposedly that's a video game yeah but it's all I mean, it's also a crime right okay is that the of actual name sort. for it i don't know not in nebraska <laughs> but this wasn't a criminal case so well, let's just call it let's just call it grand theft auto 4 let's, just to be clear yeah okay grand, well, grand theft auto 2023 okay perfect let's do it uh anyway here uh johnson had taken a vehicle apparently was going to try to buy this uh 2018 Ford Eco Sport SUV uh, was driving it around, and apparently Woodhouse had not agreed with him that he was allowed to take this vehicle and and drive it. And so uh, they reported it as stolen. He gets arrested, and he sues uh, Woodhouse, uh, alleging multiple things, breach of contract, tortious infer- interference, uh, fraud, fraudulent misrepresentation, false imprisonment, wrongful detention, all re- relating to uh, his arrest based on based on this. Um, and so we start a little bit of civil procedure. And uh, here, Woodhouse files a motion to dismiss. Uh, Johnson tries to appear by Zoom, but the court says that, uh, you know, you had six weeks to file a motion to appear by Zoom. You didn't file it until the uh, day before. It was untimely filed, so you don't get to appear by Zoom. So uh, Johnson does not appear at the uh, hearing on the motion to dismiss. Interestingly enough, on the the motion to dismiss hearing, uh, the court um, asks if there's any evidence. Woodhouse uh, submits 
uh, a piece of evidence, which I believe maybe was the, the contract for purchase, and then makes a brief oral argument. Court takes it under advisement and says that it'll issue a written opinion later grants the motion to dismiss and then johnson appeals uh, here the uh, court of appeals engages in a couple of discussions primarily the discussion over when and interestingly today must be the day about motions to dismiss and summary judgment when a motion to dismiss is converted for to a uh, motion for summary judgment and here the court of appeals essentially says you know it has nothing to do with what the court couches this as it all it has to do is if is if um, extraneous evidence is accepted, then under our um, civil procedure rules, a motion to dismiss is then uh, converted to a, a motion for summary judgment. And so since here the, the court accepted uh, extraneous evidence, now this was actually a motion for summary judgment, irregardless of how the court is couching it or how the parties think uh, it was. And the interesting piece there is once the court receives evidence and converts a motion to dismiss to a motion for summary judgment, the parties are entitled to reasonable notice and opportunity to present evidence. And here, since the court asked for evidence, said nothing about it being converted, said nothing to either party, and Johnson was not given uh, adequate opportunity to present his own evidence and, uh, you know, rebuff the evidence being offered by uh, the moving party. The court said that, um, you know, that that's that's not going to be allowed here. Johnson was prejudiced by this, and so um, it was reversed and remanded uh, for further proceedings on the motion for summary judgment. But again, uh, good discussion of when a motion to dismiss becomes a motion for summary judgment, uh, the difference between whether or not a party is prejudiced or not by not getting the opportunity to present that evidence, because not only do you have to have notice of that, but then you, you still have to show that there was some sort of prejudice uh, if you weren't given the opportunity to pre also present uh, evidence on a motion for summary judgment. But again, interesting case, especially with a pro se case and a case that seems like uh, there might not be a lot to it. There's quite a bit, again, on the uh, motion to dismiss summary judgment issue and then, um, you know, whether or not those those things are reversible error. Yeah, that's a good one. All right. I have a state v. Svengard. It's a criminal appeal, which was affirmed. It is a DUI uh, case where um, the this is interesting. It was based on a motion to suppress. The appeal is the individual was never provided a copy of a blood draw warrant. So a blood draw warrant was requested and received uh, after going to the judge's house. I don't know what time it was, but they went and got the, the warrant from the judge, came back, and it was never given to the defendant. So it was never um, provided to him. It was never handed to him. And they said because that he wasn't provided that uh that warrant, the uh, defendant argued that, hey, we shouldn't, it's not valid and it shouldn't happen. And he, all the evidence that uh, was found should be uh, excluded. The Nebraska Court of Appeals uh, disagreed and said that, uh, and same, same with the underlying trial court and I think the district court, it was appealed there too. Um, it was a purely ministerial act. Uh, giving the handing that uh, warrant to the defendant, and because it was there was a good discussion of when it was service and when it was post service and those kinds of things, and there was a good discussion about a, a standard of review. Uh, I think that was interesting. Uh, they have a higher both the district court and a higher appellate court generally review appeals from the county court for error appearing on the record, so it's error on the appealing on the record. Uh, not any other kind of error that could be found except probably plain error. Um, so those are interesting things there. There's some good uh, DUI discussion. 
uh, for a motion to suppress. So if you have a motion to suppress or a DUI, uh, maybe worth your time. Okay. The next case we have is State v. Fox. This is an appeal uh, from Furnace County. Uh, Fox was uh, convic- uh, had a plea-based conviction and sentence from a first-degree sexual assault. The interesting piece here is that Fox argues on appeal that the factual basis was insufficient to support the crime that he was convicted of. Uh, the Court of Appeals, however, in the uh, record uh, stated that the court gave uh, Fox the uh, the opportunity to object to the factual basis, asked if uh, Fox was accepting this factual basis as a part of the plea agreement and uh, the benefit of the plea agreement, Fox said uh, yes, and that was actually Fox, both Fox's attorney and Fox said uh, yes, we understand that we're accepting this factual basis as part of the plea agreement. Um, And therefore, the Court of Appeals uh, said that that issue was waived so that uh, even if there had been an issue with uh, sufficiency of the evidence from the factual basis, the fact that Fox had the opportunity to object and did not object uh, on the record waived that. And then uh, the uh, issue of whether or not the sentence was excessive uh, was handled within statutory uh, ranges. And so therefore, uh, that was also disposed of by the Court of Appeals and affirmed. Well, there you go. I have a uh, State v. Barrow. Um, it is a post-conviction case. It was, I think, a third motion for post-conviction uh, following a conviction. Uh, we'll get into the facts here, but the the big thing here was on his third motion for post-conviction relief. Um, he was time-barred procedurally, so he was outside of the year, and he filed a uh, motion to proceed in form of papyrus, which was denied. And then he also filed a motion to proceed in form of properis on the appeal, which the district court also denied. Um, can't do that. And the state agreed that you can't do that. And the state agreed with the petitioner that although um, the IFP on the underlying um, post-conviction claim could have been denied, uh, that was within the discretion. It's completely statutory and it makes reasonable sense that in order to appeal that, you can always take an interlocutory appeal from an IFP denial for the appeal. Uh, so you can always get IFP status um, to if you've been denied that on the interlocutory appeal. Um, so that's something that's minor, minorly interesting, <laughs> I suppose, out of this one. Um, and then there was a discussion about um, being procedurally barred versus time barred and whether the underlying uh, request for post-conviction relief was frivolous. And it says a fr- frivolous legal position is one wholly without merit, that is without rational argument based on the law or on the evidence. So uh, that is basically what it said is your underlying claim is frivolous and it's denied, but the uh, court should have given you IFP status in the appeal because that's in the statute as you're supposed to get it there. And everyone can check a uh, used Latin term off their bingo card uh, in form of papyrus. We got <laughs> we to slide amica, a little. Amica, is it amicus or amicus? I believe it's amicus. I, I think it's amicus brief. I've always said uh, Yeah, it, I said amicus brief, but. Is amicus the thing people sell you? Is that 
Amica? I don't Amicus. know. That's a good question. I think sounds like a, a kind of cat. I think that, <laughs> I think there's a program that people try and sell you that's called Amicus, and then there's Amicus. Brief. Amicus. Yeah. That's well, either way, bingo cards are full. Latin terms are used in yeah, form of papyrus. There we go. And bevy. Bevy goes in the middle. <laughs> and bevy, which is <laughs> the slogan of this this entire show now. <laughs> Bevies. What else we got? Uh, we have the next case we have is uh, in the interest of Gavin B, which is an appeal from a termination of parental rights in Lancaster County. Uh, again, everything here pretty straightforward on the grounds, 15 uh, months out of the last 22, and then uh, best interest being the argument. The big thing I will note here again, which I know I did, I think a couple of weeks ago, is the fact that the Court of Appeals and the uh, lower court both noted pretty heavily that uh, the father here was diagnosed with some pretty severe uh, mental health issues, uh, mental health concerns, and that he did little uh, to address that. And, you know, when you fail to address those things, when they're pretty clear from uh, evaluations and and other things that occur, uh, you know, the court seems to look disfavorably upon those. And so again, uh, when you have a juvenile 3A case, if you have a parent who is diagnosed with any kind of mental health concerns, any kind of substance abuse concerns, addressing those things seems to be pretty important on the record, which I guess is, uh, I guess, common sense. But at the same time, again, I keep seeing these noted pretty heavily in these opinions. So at least worth bringing up again. There you go. I have State v. Seeley. Um, it's a plea-based conviction for fentanyl distribution. Um, the issue here, uh, defendant had 74 fentanyl pills, cash, and other paraphernalia indicative of distribution of fentanyl. And uh, the issue here is there was an agreement, plea-based agreement. He was going to, at least when they outlined the plea agreement for the court, the prosecutor in the state said it's going to be a class two felony attempted possession with intent to distribute of a, a controlled substance. So it was going to be a class two felony is what they said on the record. And then the court says you are charged with one count possession of a controlled substance with intent to distribute fentanyl. That's a class two felony. So they had, it's the same punishment, uh, but they couched it in different ways. And the argument on appeal was, Hey, when the court said that, um, that nullified our, our agreement. Let's go back and, and get this right and get resentenced or however they wanted to do it, or at least maybe have a new trial. I'm not sure. But then um, following, nobody said anything. And then following the uh, sentence, which was eight to 10 years imprisonment with 363 days previously served, uh, they appealed and they alleged that because the court understanding of what the uh, agreement was was different than what was outlined on the record, um, he should be permitted to withdraw his plea. Uh, the Supreme Court has held, as they held here, that if the defendant remains silent upon the breach of a plea agreement, he or she can neither move to withdraw the plea nor seek specific performance of the agreement. So if you see something, say something. Uh, if you're going to get it wrong, I, I mean, if, if something's going out of the ordinary and not in accordance with the plea agreement, you got to say it then or you're going to waive it. So that's, that's I think, something to everybody knows but it's something to always be good to be to pay attention yeah it's always good to be reminded of that and to pay attention when you're reciting those plea agreements and other things and make sure that the uh, both sides are are owning up to what they agreed to he also appealed his uh, sentence and said it was uh, excessive Um, guess what it was within the statutory range so it was uh, affirmed on appeal noticing a theme there yeah there is 
the final case we come to is State of Nebraska versus Beal. This is an appeal from a district court's denial of Beal's motion to transfer his uh, criminal case to the juvenile court. Uh, Beal was 15 years old and was charged with discharging a firearm at an inhabited house, occupied building, or occupied motor vehicle. Essentially, uh, Beal and some other uh, members of his group uh there were shots that come from this car at uh, another group of, of people and, and vehicles, and they determined that Beal was the shooter. Um, and so then there uh, becomes a pretty uh, intensive discussion as to whether or not his case should have been transferred from the district court to the juvenile court, given his uh, age um, and what he was charged with. Again, these are very fact-dependent, uh, so if you have a juvenile case and you're worried about a transfer case, uh, they're always worth looking at just because, again, there's there's so many factors. I mean, here we go to the letter O, which I don't know what that uh, is associated with in numbers. What is O in the alphabet? I don't know. Don't, uh, it's a lot don't of try and count. Yeah, high numbers. So anyway, there's a lot of factors, and anytime you have an intensive factor test, facts matter a lot, and so uh, looking at this for uh, that value is good, but uh, Beal's case will remain with the uh, district court because the Court of Appeals affirmed. Hey, there we go. Is that it for this week? I think we're done. Perfect. Um, let's see. That's point two law review. I'm John Brandt. And I am Carson Messerschmidt. Go back to episode one for the disclaimer. I always forget to say that. Um, Continue to follow us on all the social media. Oh, yeah. We're on there. the socials. Yeah. So if you see our hashtags and you see us fly by your feed. We like would, it up. Yeah. We would love uh, any feedback on that. And please continue to provide us feedback. Hopefully, we had heard uh, some feedback on the gong. We've tried to lower that. So hopefully, if anybody has any feedback, we love any constructive feedback to make this a better experience for you. They're okay with bringing the gong. Yeah. They just want to lower the gong. Lower the gong. Wake us up. Don't deafen us. <laughs> Startle me. Don't startle me. Just let me know you're here. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll see you all next week. Have a great week. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.